When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm June Thomas. Today, our club members are discussing Elizabeth Gilbert's best-selling memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. To introduce the conversation, here's Stephen Metcalf. Hello, I am Stephen Metcalf, a intermittent contributor to the Slate website, and I'm here today in the Slate offices in New York City with Katie Royfe, a novelist, a nonfiction book writer and a professor in the School of Journalism at New York University, and Julia Turner, who is the culture editor of Slate.com. We're here today to talk about a book that may be on the bestseller list until the end of time, barring a uh, cataclysmic event, Eat, Pray, Love, One Woman's Search for Everything Across Italy, India, and Indonesia by Elizabeth Gilbert. Katie, you made me read this book. (laughs) And I think my choice was reading this book or getting down on all fours with a ball gag in my mouth and like a full gimp outfit on and being, you know, videoed for YouTube. And now I'm second guessing my choice. This is not a book that I admired. And I'm curious why you do. Is there any in place in particular, you'd like to start in mounting a defense for a book that I regard as nearly indefensible. Well, um, I'll start out by saying um, I agreed with you when I first was asked by Slate to write about this book. Um, and I thought when I looked at it in the bookstore, it's so girly. It's so embarrassing. It's exactly the kind of book I'm not going to want to open on the subway. It's like a spiritual quest. It sounded um, in all the conventions to be the stupidest book of all time. However... It, it turned out to be only in the lower decile of the stupidest books of all time. <laughs> no, I think, for various complicated reasons we can discuss here, that um, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote actually a quite original book, and that she, with her very particular writing voice, her sense of humor, and her personality, managed to transcend and subvert some of the conventions of the, oh, I was so depressed, and then I turned my life around memoir. Julia, do you think that that's... Uh actually the case with this book, that it transcended these genre conventions, or did it fulfill them in a slightly new way? I picked up this book reluctantly, expecting to dislike it, and and came at it from a sociological perspective. What is it about this book that has made it so popular among so many American women? Why would they be so interested in something so simplistic and girly and um, self-actualizing? And I found it instead to be an incredibly cannily constructed piece of rhetoric. I feel like this book was a fortress designed brilliantly to subvert my every resistance to it. Hmm. Like I feel like at every moment where I began to be like, ugh, this woman, she would be like, now at this point you're thinking, ugh, this woman, but blah, 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 blah. And she'd, she'd come back and sort of reel me back in. And by the end of it, I was convinced that she was a smart, interesting person who, um, 
whose quest I respected. That's so interesting because I think my reaction was very much like yours. I, I saw it as a cannily constructed piece of rhetoric, absolutely. This woman is a professional down the line. She's, a, in some regards, a terrific writer. Very, I would, I would say sort of high-end hack writer, but a terrific writer who knew how to play with the conventions so that someone's resistance you know, possible resistance to them would be broken down, hence the bestseller. But that struck me as manipulative and cynical. And I always felt as though the book had very close in mind the, the a reader just such as you. And, and But are you suggesting a Wizard of Oz type Elizabeth Gilbert who's just purely manipulating you with her canny understanding of the convention? Because I would think that's probably wrong here. I mean, you don't believe that she felt or experienced or had any of these thoughts or ideas or feelings as she's going along? Actually, my my biggest resistance to the book wasn't its quality per se. It was it was its credibility. I, I actually didn't – I felt as though in some regards it conformed so closely to what the needs of its narrative had been you know, set out to be from the beginning of the book – that I was suspicious of it at every single turn. I actually didn't believe that she had the experiences she had in the book in the precise way that they're present- well, presented. I'm not sure that matters. I mean, first of all, who, that does, in, in terms of whether this is a successful or a good book, it doesn't necessarily matter whether she, Elizabeth Gilbert, felt Before, all these things exactly as she it matters whether them. It matters whether or not you believe that she felt, that, that in, some, in some sense that the, tr- that, the tr- that the truth is sort of more important that's than the actual facts. That's all that matters is whether you believe it. And, but before, before we get into all this, we should briefly recap for our listeners yeah, I agree. what the structure of the book is. So... Elizabeth Gilbert suffers a terrible divorce. She leaves her husband. Um, she sort of has a midlife crisis in her late 20s. Uh, early 30s. It's 30. Around 30. her 30s, yeah. Decides to leave her husband, takes up another lover, gets her heart broken, is in a pit of black despair, decides that she needs to sort of travel and recover and heal and stop hating herself for having broken up her marriage and, and keep herself from being so depressed that she is she's suicidal at points. So she decides that she would like to spend four months in Italy, four months on an ashram in India, and four months uh, with a medicine man in Bali who told her once when she was on a yoga retreat there writing an article for a magazine that he prophesied that she would come back and spend four months in Bali. Uh, so she decided to. Um, and then she's like, how can I do this? How can I reconcile all these desires? She writes a book proposal, gets a chunk of change, is able to do this. Um, and the the book is constructed sort of in these three parts. She first says she's going to pursue pleasure in Italy, mostly through eating, uh, then prayer in India at the ashram, and then something she calls balance uh, in Bali. I mean, I... I, and I- Right. And I mean, I agree the structure, just as you describe it, it sounds too neat. And one doesn't usually get to plan one's recovery as neatly as you would a book proposal in the way that she does. However, here's where I think she actually, I mean, in a way, she may be a high level hack, but she's a very high level hack, if she is a high level hack. But here's what I think is that there are certain accidents in this book, little accidental glimpses you get of somebody recovering that that redeem its possibly overdetermined structure. And one of them, I'll just give an example. Um, she writes about going to Italy and eating all this pasta, and she's taken this vow of celibacy. She's decided she's not going to sleep with anyone for a year and because men have been so confusing in her life. And um, there's a moment where she goes to this lingerie store, and she buys all this incredibly expensive bras and underwear and camisoles and all this lacy stuff. And then she realizes to herself, and she thinks to herself, I have nobody... It's going to see this. Why have I just bought this, like, mass of 
of lingerie. And it's such a bizarre and telling and eccentric detail. And I think that she is actually such a good observer of both the things around her and the worlds around her and also of herself that every now and then she stumbles on these strange accidental insights into how people really do recover from something like this, which is actually an interesting subject. Mm. I I had a very different response, maybe not to that specific episode, but to her sort of writerly persona and her powers of observation. I felt as though the events in the book are so heavily processed through that writerly voice first of all. And then second of all, the events of the book fit so neatly into, you know, a series of, you know, necessary patterns in order for her to achieve these moments of like kind of what I would think of as sort of pseudo transcendence or pseudo self insight that um, I actually felt as though I was never encountering either other people or the actual world through this voice or in these events. I, I felt that there was a cutesy self-regard to the voice that actually shut out the world, that when the world didn't present itself conveniently to her as a consumable object or something that became a you know medium for her own self-knowledge, then it ceased to exist. And I also felt that absolutely other people in this book have no independent existence of this woman's needs, which are rather intense when it comes to other people. Well, one thing that um, would argue against what you're saying is that I think there are moments where she makes fun of her own venture here and there are a lot of those moments and one and there's also a moment and I'll bring this one up specifically where she decides to buy a house for this woman she's befriended in Bali and her two orphans she's adopted and her one child and it's this incredibly grand sentimental self-righteous gesture in many ways at the heart of this book and then it turns out that the woman is cheating her and the woman is trying to like use the money and get more money. And it, it's this moment where she realizes that the way this culture in Bali works is much more complicated than she in her kind of simplistic way blunders into. Yeah. And there are a lot of moments like that in this book where she sets out to do one thing and she's able to both mock, make fun of herself. She's able to see the complexity of what's going on around her, even if it isn't answering the story that she needs it to tell. Julia, did that episode resonate with you in any way in particular? Because actually, I do disagree with Katie about that, but I'm just curious whether it struck you. Because it did strike me as anomalous in some important ways, but it aroused my suspicions further, which I'll explain in a moment. But I'm just curious, did it lend kind of credibility or depth to the narrative um, when it turns out that this Balinese woman might be fleecing her? What surprised me about it was how neatly it then resolved itself. Yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was the part that it. I've had some skepticism yeah. about. Because, you know, you, just at the moment where you begin to wonder, geez, is this woman taking her for a ride? She has a little chapter where she says, you know, geez, maybe this woman's taking me for a ride. <laughs> Again, the, like, the fortress has, has anticipated my reaction and, and tried to reel me back in. And so she has this confrontation with the woman, and the, the whole book is sort of, she sets it up as a pursuit of honesty. A friend early on in her marital crisis says to her, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. And so all through the book, she claims she's trying to do that, except in this one instance where she goes to the woman and lies and says, you know, if you don't, the woman is basically stalling on buying property with the money that Elizabeth has given her. And, and then asks her for more, and then asks a considerable for, yeah, for, yeah, for augmentation at of At least twice as much money. Yeah, exactly. um, and so Elizabeth goes, you know, the woman has the money in her bank account and Elizabeth can't get it back. But um, she goes to her anyway and just sort of lies to her and says, 
if you don't, you know, you need to have this property bought before I leave. And if you don't, like, I, I will take all the money back. Yeah. And the woman freaks out. And in the narrative of the book, in the next four hours, has the, the property purchased and is, is sort of so shocked. That feels to me like how things sort of work in countries like that. If you spent time in places like that, it, it does work. And this, the thing that was impossible is suddenly possible. The thing, I mean, that kind of slightly surrealistic way that things work and and both the both the crazy obstacle and the and the way it's resolved so that felt to me actually real about one's experience in a place like that yeah i mean whether or not it's actually true it just lent so that's one incredibly tidy moment at the very end of the book and then the second of course is that she finds true love and meets this guy who isn't the guy she thinks she likes at first but then she realizes that even though he's 53 and brazilian he's perfect for her and and they they literally sail off into the sunset at the end of the book. And um, I don't know. There's something uh, there's something that feels so real about her responses to particular moments of despair and hope in this book. I mean, in particular, I liked her descriptions of trying to meditate as someone who's done yoga incredibly intermittently and never really tried to meditate. But that you know, they always say, "Still your thoughts. Don't think about anything. Whatever." And she, like, describes in really kind of good detail what it's actually like to try to do that and how frustrating it is and how impossible it is and, you know, in, in sort of a winning way, um, like, describe that going to an ashram and trying to meditate all the time is, like, frustrating and annoying mm-hmm. and cranky and makes you hate yourself because you can't focus on things. So there are these moments of sort of particular truth and within the book, but the notion that you would have this, like, incredibly tidy journey that would just wrap up into a pretty bow at the end lends this sense of, like, unbelievability and... and Fairy tale to it, yeah. That, that under, you know, it's sort of fighting with those I mean, moments. It's kind I mean, of ordinary. I mean, you got divorced. You had a relationship that was doomed. That was really like insane for a while. Then a year later, and many years after you got divorced, you met someone else. I mean, is that such a like an ordinary circumstance? It's kind of unusual. But I mean, the terms are situation. set up slightly different than that. I mean, it's slightly differently. It's the the. She also the, deliberately leaves it unclear whether she stays with this guy. I think for Although the reason that you say... if you go say, to her website, she says, we did stay together, and her next book is about their happy marriage. But I think in this, I think that the fact that she chose to keep that out of this book was her desire not to have the man come in and save her at the end and have that happy ending. So That's she true. did, to, be, to her credit, not offer that conclusiveness. The way she leaves the book is, we live in different places, hopefully it'll work out, I don't really know, in a deliberate effort to create that ambiguity to sort of not tie it up that way. Right. Can I just ask a macro question here quickly? Yeah. Can you imagine a man enjoying this book? I know a couple of men who have enjoyed it, but they are men who have spent time on ashrams. Okay. All right. I mean, this struck me. I, it's a genre I'm not familiar with, so the template from which it's supposedly strange and that's why I clever think ways. You don't see how, how much better this is than, say, Prozac Nation. This is like a work of an entirely different level yeah I never read but i mean what's how is that more it's just and i mean in general these books about you know spiritual quest my depression like all this this kind of narrative when it's not written by william styron mm-hmm. um is pretty terrible and that the narcissism and the sort of endless complaint and the and the kind of conventions of it she's actually doing it in a much lighter way in a much more self critical way. And I think, I mean, when you look at, I'm not going to compare her to Mary McCarthy. I don't think she's a writer on the level of Mary McCarthy. But if you look at the memoir and the autobiographical writings of somebody like Mary McCarthy, one of the things that changes it is a kind of fierce self-deprecation. So she turns her critical eye toward herself. And that I think that kind of 
memoir is very different than the kind of memoir that we're used to. And I do think that she's writing, this is not a celebration of herself. She shows herself in all kinds of embarrassing circumstances. She's constantly making fun of herself for her own melodrama, her own, all the qualities of, you know, her own desire to be loved and to be charming. And she is, in her own way, turning all that all that thought and all that introspection against herself. It's not just a kind of eternal whine. I thought that the, this was a book that was reluctant to exact any serious psychic cost on the part of the reader, and that was initiated on the part of a writer completely unwilling to do anything like actual soul-searching, and that just came home to me again and again. And I'd like to go back to the example of buying the house for the Balinese woman. The reason why I found it, I found it, ridiculous for two reasons. The first was, in my margin, I said, well, why is this story the one story that doesn't turn out so... It does eventually turn out patly, but in the, in the process, it actually becomes quite awkward. And there's finally an, what feels like an actual conflict. There's an, an actual confrontation with a native culture, a specific person within that culture, and there's a clash. There's a clash between her, like, very, I think, selfish desire to bestow charity upon this woman, which could be regarded as deeply insulting, first of all, which she doesn't ever consider, and and a kind of network, deep network of social relations as they're set up within the Balinese culture and like an attitude towards foreigners upon the part of the Balinese and whether or not they, you know, would accept such a gift, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in, my, in the margin of my book, I said, well, why is this the one story that has some nettlesome details along the way? Because it's a fact-checkable story. The fact is there were a ton of third-party witnesses to how this actually played out because she emailed everyone she knew in order to solicit them for funds and, you know, had to sort of keep them abreast of the story and whether or not this woman actually achieved title to a property and how she did. All of this is actually checkable in some way. I felt like there were many other stories in the book which which hinted at possible jagged edges or psychic discomfort or ineradical facts of life and existential discomfort that, that got smoothed over so quickly. And this one, you know... But you're being really literal-minded, Steve, because, I mean... Could let me finish, okay. though. And then secondly, the but the most important <laughs> thing to her, and to, you know, the, the thesis I'm hammering away at is that is that the, the, the needs of the narrative, and therefore, I think, the needs of the consumer of the book, the woman who's consuming this book, are always paramount in the telling, which makes it, a, to my mind, a deeply untruthful book. And an example is, after this situation with the, you know, uh, house, purchasing the house becomes deeply uncomfortable. The, the, the wise Brazilian man says to her, don't get angry about it, whatever happens. If you get angry, you'll lose her. And that would be a pity because she's a marvelous person and she loves you. This is her survival tactic. Just accept that. You must not think that she's not a good person. You must not think that no matter what... I don't believe that man said that. I think repeatedly he speaks in a voice that's her voice and not his voice, along with all the other men in this book. None of them have a credible autonomous but, I mean, voice of their own. And that, and she's putting those, excuse me, let me finish. Let me finish. And she's putting those words in his mouth because she needs to service the, you know, in an anodyne way, she needs to service the possible discomfort of the reader who's like, wait a second, you're suddenly, suddenly we went from this, like, everything always works out great. You get pasta, you, you get God in the pizza. Like, where's God in the pizza? Bring back the pizza. Bring back God. Like, everything's supposed to work out perfectly. And she says, so she puts in the voice of this authoritative <coughs> older male, don't worry, everybody still loves everyone else. And we're in the realm of Barney.
So I, I, I just think this book is irredeemably um, See, I, corrupt. I mean, this book to me raises sort of the classic questions about the travelogue, right? Is the travelogue an effort to understand the world that you're going through, the people there, to really encounter them and understand them as they are and all their customs? Or is the travelogue an excuse to set yourself in opposition to other places or, in fact, your ideas about other places and see what you discover about yourself along the way. And the thing I sort of like about this book and another of its, like, canny defenses is at the very outset it sets forth that it's, you know, it's not an effort to understand Italy, India, and, and Indonesia. It's an effort to understand herself in these different places for the particular reasons that she, you know, for the particular things that she chooses to focus on in their cultures. And I think there's a way in which she does that with the people that she meets in the book as well. She's, it's not a real effort to understand, to get us to understand or know this Brazilian man, Felipe, and, you know, what he's all about. It's an effort for us to, for herself to sort of figure out her own issues with him as a foil. And I think because she's so um, forthright about that in the book, I mean, more so about the culture she encounters than about the people she encounters, but I think it's the same impulse. I didn't. It didn't bother me that much. Yeah, and also, I mean, if just going back to Mary McCarthy for a second, she certainly wrote about how she fudged and blurred details in her, uh, in um, how we grew, how I grew, and all, all sorts of her autobiographical writing. And if you were to take Philip Roth's The Facts or Updike's Self Consciousness or any of the great works of autobiographical literature that we actually have, they're not literally true. I mean, I know from my own understanding and, and knowledge of people writing memoirs, sometimes in order to present something in the most uh, clear and economical and a way that really projects what happened, you sort of have to fudge the details. Uh, Katie, I, I, And I mean, so I don't think the most interesting thing we can do in this book is say, is this factually exactly no, what he said? I, of course it isn't. I mean, she, all this stuff she put Katie, in quotes, I'm, of course it's not what I'm completely uninterested in fact-checking this book that or any memoir. what you're doing. No, or any memoir that's ever been written. Okay. The facts should never get in the way of the okay. truth. But that the problem with this book, well, it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the problem is this book fails so miserably in the face of the truth that one then starts to wonder about the quality of the facts. But before we get but too you carried addressed to... why people I mean obviously this really comes down to do you like her or do you not like her? Because you're either with her or you're not with her. The thing about this kind of book mm-hmm. is that it lives or dies on do we do we like the voice? It's like writing a first novel. And I mean I think this book is better than a lot of first novels that are come across our desks uh, all the time. But the question of do you like her and obviously you didn't like her and we uh, Julia sort of liked her and I like her. So that's, you know, in a way, that's what this is about. And But you do have to address because so many people do like her. I, don't um, feel, I, I think don't, you have to think about why and what it is that's... Um, I, don't know that, I don't know that that's exactly right. I mean, I think the burden to describe why so many people like, you know, Oprah or so many people like death metal or, you know, a lot of people like a lot of things. I mean, you know, I, I want to ground this conversation in some reality here. I want people who haven't encountered this book to encounter some of its words and then, you know, make a judgment as to whether I'm just being lunatic about it. At one point in the ashram, she's, I think, obsessing over her divorce and she can't let it go. And I think a New Zealand man gives her, leads her through some, you know, series of courtyards and whatever pathways and then leaves her in I can't even remember exactly where it is but under essentially under the stars or the stars are imminent they're about to come out and he leaves her with a piece of paper and says read this as the stars come out right so I just want to I want to read what those what that man gives her which what, what page are you on I'm sorry I'm, on, I'm on, in the paperback I'm on page 184 and then it spills over to 185 
I'll, I'll read the whole sort of sequence leading into it. I climbed to the top of the tower. I was now standing at the tallest place in the ashram with a view overlooking the entirety of this river valley in India. Mountains and farmland stretched out as far as I could see. I had a feeling this was not a place students were normally allowed to hang out, but it was lovely up there. Maybe this is where my guru watches the sun go down when she's in residence here. Blah, blah, blah. And folded the piece of, of paper from the plump, from the plumber poet from New Zealand, and he had typed instructions for freedom. One, life's metaphors are God's instructions. Two, you have just climbed up and above the roof. There is nothing between you and the infinite. Now let go. Three, the day is ending. It's time for something that was beautiful to turn into something else that is beautiful. Now let go. Four, your wish for resolution was a prayer. Your being here is God's response. Let go and watch the stars come out on the outside and on the inside. Five, with all your heart, ask for grace and let go. Six, with all your heart, forgive him. All caps, forgive yourself. Of course, that's the one enduring message of this entire book, by the way. Forgive yourself no matter what. And, th and let him go. Seven, let your intention be freedom from useless suffering. Then let go. Eight, watch the heat of day pass into the cool night. Let go. Nine, when the karma of a relationship is done, only love remains. It's safe let go. Ten, when the past has passed from you at last, let go. Then climb down and begin the rest of your life with great joy. I, okay, that to wait. me is utterly sick-making. And there there are dozens of equally sick-making moments in Steve, this book. hold on a second. read it in a tone of voice. And also, that's not something... Yeah, that was something like someone else gave her that's totally the uncharacteristic. That this, she meets this dippy plumber poet from New Zealand who speaks the way the people who always write these books speak. Right, that's the, not her the, voice. The key of the book is that... Let's read her voice, then. Is Let's read her voice. Let's read her poem. Here's no, the poem. No, her poems, I mean, I think you're not well, reading representative parts of the book. If you read her poem, read something that's more representative of the book. Why? These are, these are moments in the book in which she achieves personal, emotional, and spiritual breakthrough. She finds that language utterly credible. I find it utterly preposterous. But it's Why? not typical of the language of the but book. But then when so. she, but but she very. Also, you can't read in this sarcastic tone and have anyone be able to hear what you're saying as well. I suppose. I mean, we're just hearing heightened Steve sarcasm. We're not hearing the words. One moment from the um, passage at the ashram, which is the passage I found hardest to get through because there is a lot of, I was sitting in the hand of God stuff. But she, um, I don't know, she's just skeptical of it all in a way that I found interesting. I mean, she, the way she talks about um, detachment in Buddhism is interesting. Now, I have my own personal issues with the very word detachment. This is on page 173. Having met spiritual seekers who already seem to live in a state of complete emotional disconnect from other human beings and who, when they talk about the sacred pursuit of detachment, make me want to shake them and holler, buddy, that is the last thing you need to practice. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think that sort of is a question that's animating the book here. We're talking about to what degree is she detached from the countries that she's going through, the people that she's meeting, to what degree is the message of the book, forgive yourself regardless of the facts, regardless of what's happened in your life, what you've done to the people in it, what mm -hmm. what you're meeting with the people you meet. And, and so I sort of think that some of the potential falseness that we're kind of tripping over here is her lesson is the facts don't matter. What matters is how you perceive them and how you think about them. That's how you get yourself out of a depression. That's how mm -hmm. you get yourself through existence and life. And that it's not about whether 
Felipe said that or I didn't. It's not about whether the Balinese woman is taking you for also, a ride or not. Yeah. It's about how you respond to the forces that come at you. And I realize that there's right. a way in which that seems incredibly narcissistic and self-indulgent, and maybe she should feel bad about what she did to her husband. It is sort of unclear sort but of how their marriage ended. But, you know, this is sort of the lesson of the book. And it, it's a very comforting lesson, and it's very comforting here because it ends up so nicely for her. And maybe that feels like a false lesson, is that, like, you can't she, always... Yeah. You know, I mean, I agree with Julia. I, I mean, also in terms of her relation to the ashram, she has several moments where she both makes fun of her own failure. She, has, she says at one point, like, here am I in the middle of the most sacred place in the world, and I'm thinking about my ex-boyfriend. What am I like in eighth grade? I mean, she's constantly saying things like that. She also has a moment where she makes fun of her own fantasy and delusion about being the quiet girl. She mm. has this whole beautiful picture of herself becoming totally uncharacteristically because she's the, this kind of always creating this cocktail party-like atmosphere around herself. She has this idea that she's going to be quiet and be like the silent woman and everyone's going to think, oh, she's so beautiful. She's so quiet. And then she comically deflates it by that – and in the ashram, they ask her to become the key person, and she has to have the most social job where she gives people their keys, and she realizes this whole fantasy she had was totally silly, basically. Yeah. So she makes fun of the fa- – I mean, I agree there's some stuff in there that's a little – there is this sort of sappy part of her God relation with God that does come into play, but I also think the fact that she keeps making fun of herself and the other people in the ashram and – she she has a friend there from Texas who calls her groceries because she eats so much. I mean, the whole thing is done in a way that isn't straightforwardly um, about finding God and transforming your life. And it's but, not in the tone of the dippy plumber poet, the, yeah. whole, the whole book, which is what saves it for me. Let's talk about the Texan in the ashram who calls her groceries. True, the book is not all in the tone of the dippy plumber poet, but... The Texan is a good example of someone who serves, if this were a work of fiction, you would know exactly what purpose that character served and why he had been invented. It's a, you know, burly, life-experienced, again, sort of older guy from the heart of America who had an enormous amount of skepticism when it came to all of this kind of transcendental Eastern gobbledygook. And if he can overcome that skepticism, then you, dear reader, should be able to as well. I find his calling her groceries just grating absolutely beyond belief. (laughs) But in all honesty, I don't believe that this person exists, which isn't to say that I don't believe she didn't meet a Texan while she was there and he might have called her groceries. I don't believe that this person, in reading the book, I don't believe that this person existed in exactly this form as a convenient foil for her who says exactly the right thing at exactly the right time and who services the needs of the narrative at that particular moment. But again, you keep coming back to this, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe. I mean, I... Whether or not you believe in this character is maybe not the most, as I say, interesting prism to look at the book. What His existence in her portrayal of the ashram, what I mean to say is it's not predictable. It's not filled with these kind of conventionally holy people who are all, you know, finding God. That in a way, um, and I agree with you, uh, she needs to have him there for certain reasons, for narrative reasons to propel the story forward. On the other hand... You know, her ability to focus this book and to write about those details. You know, it's not that easy to sit down and write about your life and choose the right details to focus on. She could just as easily have written about her time in the ashram writing about somebody else. I mean, how do you choose who you write about and what you say? And that's part of the – that act of selection is part of writing biography or autobiography. You have the massive experience, which is someone's life. 
And I'm I think glad that he's the voice of the ashram and not again right. the poor dippy plumber poet. Right. Um, there is. I mean, there's an interesting moment in the book toward the end where she's in the end she's sailing to this island in Bali with her new lover, and she describes how she'd been to the island before, like two years before the book even started, um, at the lows of her depression after her divorce, um, and that she sort of had this. You know, she tried to go and spend a week on this island and not speak to anybody. And and as she describes sort of all of the emotional turmoil she went through and sort of accepting herself, forgiving herself, understanding her anger and sorrow, letting them go. You're like, wait, you did this already two years before you I did it this exactly, time? Um, and there's a, it's, it's a moment. It's interesting that it's there at the end of the book because it sort of points up exactly how concise and constructed a version this is of what it seems must actually be a much longer story. But again, I feel like that artifice is not it doesn't bother me that much. In fact, I think she's, you know, when she lays out at the beginning of the book, I'm going to have the book's going to have 108 chapters because that's how many beads there are in a prayer bead thing. I was like, "Oh, for God's sake." And um, you know, we're going to have to do 36 chapters in India and 36 in Italy, and it's all going to be so neat and tidy. I was like, "There's no way she can pull this off. It's going to feel so ridiculous." And I'll in see. fact, it's like yeah. it's kind of like a long prose poem with these little moments like I, I think it's just really well put together I mean I, I don't dispute that it's expert I just think that, that expertise is different from everything else that makes a book an admirable piece of writing I mean I, I also feel like I've been put on the defensive about the plumber poet let's read some of what she says subsequent to that this is what rituals are for she regards this moment that she has what page are you reading? Um, I'm on page 187 we do spiritual ceremonies as human beings in order to create a safe resting place for our most complicated feelings of joy or trauma so that we don't have to haul those feelings around with us forever, weighing us down. We all need such places of ritual safekeeping. And I do believe that if your culture or tradition doesn't have the specific ritual you're craving, then you're absolutely permitted to make up a ceremony, ceremony of your own devising, fixing your own broken-down emotional systems with all the do-it-yourself resourcefulness of a generous plumber poet. If you bring the right earnestness to your homemade ceremony, God will provide the grace, and that is why we need God. I felt as though everything was turned into a consumer good or a touristical experience. But she makes fun of that in and for herself when she compares. She brings up the R.E.M. song, Choosing My Religion, and she says, I'm like that. You know, she's always taking a sort of skeptical view of that sentimental side of herself. I agree there's this sappy sentimental side, but then she does make fun of it. And I think that's what makes this a more interesting book than if she I, didn't. But I don't think that an ability to make fun of yourself makes up for, in the course of a 320-page book, a persistent inability to achieve self-insight. I really don't. Or, or, or an inability to see other people as autonomous and real, and an inability to see other cultures as complex and interesting. You know, Why do you think she themselves. doesn't achieve self-insight? That just seems a little a little extreme. I, For the exact reason that the passage that I just read means nothing to me at all. I, I think that that's... Okay, but that's one paragraph in a very long book. Why do you think in the but whole Katie, book... Am I, am I really being asked to read the entire book and then come up with some precisely quantified proportion of shit passages to good passages? <laughs> the book is terrible and it's terrible because it's consistently like the passage passages that i read and the reason to my mind is because this is a person who on the pretense of a subverting a kind of te template uh, for a woman's memoir and b you know on the pretense of of achieving something like difficult self-knowledge really does neither she fulfills the template perfectly because she brings a sense of humor and a, and, and a degree of expertise to it makes no difference whatsoever every as malcolm gladwell once pointed out 
Every single diet book starts the same way. Every single diet book, if you if you read them, they all say. Right. But as you said, she subverts yeah. those contentions. I want to hear how the diet books start. Every diet book starts the same way. It says, you know, you've tried all these other diets. These other diet books have lied to you. They've refused to tell you the hard truth of what it is to diet. And I will now tell you the truth. And 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 it proceeds to lie to you in exactly the same way every previous diet how book you've ever that? read is them. She says that. You know, ha, 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 like I'm – the subtitle I think is a good indicator of this, One Woman's Search for Everything. Now, of course, there's a l- level of self-conscious jokiness to that, like everything. I mean a, a book about the search for everything is ridiculously self-indulgent. But because I can chuckle at myself, well, I get to both have everything but not be regarded as self-indulgent. I don't think that chuckle accomplishes that amount of aesthetic work. You know what you're not taking into consideration also, Steve, is that it's very – there is a level of risk in writing a book like this where you put so much of yourself out. And this is the level of risk. Most of the time when women write about themselves in memoir form like this, they are so violently attacked. And I've talked about this with Megan before, um, and she's given a lot of thought to the subject as well. But it, it – people are – women are attacked constantly for being self-indulgent when they write pretty much anything autobiographical. Uh my friend Deb Kogan, who wrote Shutter Babe, is a good example. Several years ago, Elizabeth Wurtzel, certainly for writing Prozac Nation. I mean, almost all books, especially by young women who are writing about their sexual relationships in some way. I mean, there is a level of insane attack and insanely personal attack. And to write a book like this involves um, a kind of... And you can say she gets some exhibitionistic pleasure out of it. Of course she does. But in addition to that, there is a level of, I I actually think, some kind of bravery in writing a book like that because you are risking that kind of, you know, incredible attack for, oh, she's so self-indulgent. Why didn't she stay home and just have a kid? I mean, if you look at, you know, Amazon reviews of this book or you look at the violent rage against her in all sorts of corners of the Internet, you will see. I mean, I think that's true. That's how some people have responded to it. And, you know, I've certainly found a lot of vitriol on the web. And I know a number of my close friends really detest this book and this project generally for those very reasons. But it seems to me that the thing I'm curious about in your dislike is whether you think it's unreasonable to have this project of I'm going to spend a year thinking basically just about myself and how I respond to the world or whether it's something about the way that she executed the project or failed to actually understand herself that bothers you. Like the project itself is indulgent, but she sort of says at the beginning, this is indulgent. What's wrong with indulgent? I'm all I have in the world. I'm, I'm going to check myself out for a year. I'm not doing anything else. But she's also and writing then, about something. I mean, there's a larger relevance to writing about this particular period that in looking at yourself, sometimes you can get at something larger about how women are in the world, how people are in the world, what happens when a relationship fails. There's some ways in which you tap into something more universal by looking at yourself very closely. Right. I mean, I, th- I think it's... I mean, was William Styron being narcissistic and self-indulgent when he wrote Darkness Visible? You probably think so. No, I haven't read it. Okay. But, I mean, lots of... And I would say, argue that when men write books like this, that no one calls them self-indulgent. It's when women write books like this that people start calling them self-indulgent. And that um, there is a version of this that men write all the time and that don't, they don't get attacked in the same kind of way. Mm-hmm. Whether that means we should attack the men or immunize the women, I think, is unclear. But Okay. Right? I mean... 
Right. And some men do get get attacked. But but the I mean, back to your original question, like, is it in and is it in and of itself as a project or a life project or a writing project? Is it in and of itself so self-indulgent as to be irredeemably offensive or something? You know, I don't I don't know how to answer that. I can't. I mean, I'm trying to imagine someone with an entirely different personality. I, I don't respond to this woman's personality at all. I find that, or let's call it her persona or whatever is constructed here. She may be the most delightful person who ever lived. I detest the person in this book. I wouldn't want to spend a minute with her. I would run immediately in the opposite direction if I were ever forced to encounter someone like this. But that said, like, I, is it possible to separate out the idea of you know, a magazine writer in her early 30s going through a personal crisis, taking a year off to write a book about three different cultures. Someone could have probably done it quite well. I don't know. I mean, it, it... I mean, I think basically it's a question of whether you think her response is dishonest. Like, is it true that you can get yourself in a mental space where you can respond to the slights and slings and arrows of the world with sort of a curious mind and a jolly countenance? Or is that just not how the world is? crappy things happen and then you feel bad about them and you hate yourself and you have to go through that and it's not you know is it is it it, I I think that's sort of my question at the end of the book is like is her is what she's discovered this this sense that you know this sort of chin up discovery Mm -hmm. at the end is that does that feel dishonest but she goes through a lot of she goes through a lot of and this is not just the one year where I mean obviously she this divorce and the break of this marriage is over many years so I think she goes through a lot of self-hatred despair, which she views somewhat critically. I mean, she has a great passage, which unfortunately I can't put my hand on, where she talks about all the bathrooms she's cried in. She starts crying in the ashram, and she's just thinking, oh, the world, and I'm so tired of the world and its bathrooms. And And, all its horrible bathrooms. And all its horrible bathrooms, which is a great line, because she's she's both, you know, discussing that actual moment, you know, the sort of dark moment, along with seeing how silly it sounds like she does it all all at the same time and i think that's one of the interesting things that she actually does achieve in her writing um which is doing both at the same time both a serious explore exploration of this actual total despair and a kind of distance from it and and i think she does it's clear that she has suffered a lot in this book and there were years of suffering that she hasn't even put into this book and i don't think it's that neat i mean yes this structure is obviously artificial, but it doesn't seem to me impossible that somebody over five years recovers from something pretty bad. I mean, but that you, I just want to—I just want to interject here, since I'm the villainous man who refuses to understand this book or like its author, um, the voice of its author. That you claim that her suffering somehow is genuine. I will say that I thought the most interesting thing I read about the book was Jennifer Egan's review for the New York Times. Uh, the Sunday Times, which which whose central point was this is a jokey, vervy, crisp voice who's suffering. I don't believe for one second. And if you don't believe the su- uh, suffering at the heart of the book, the, the book becomes utterly frivolous to you. I mean, maybe my point of view also. I mean, I was probably as the only one amongst us who's gone through a breakup of a marriage. I think I have maybe a different perspective on it, but I do believe in her suffering. I know I just do, and I think that this book. And maybe this is why I'm like the perfect test case generic woman who is like making this book into a bestseller across our nation. But I do actually believe that she has captured something. And I mean, this is a subject that you don't you don't know as much about as me. But I think she has actually captured something about that period of um, a marriage breaking up and this sort of strange, raw, transitionary period. I think she's accurately 
describing something that I can recognize and that I have not been able to put in words as well as she has. Well, I mean, I, 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 I don't think a successful defense of a book in the face of skepticism ever rests on, well, I've had an experience like this and you haven't. Or, you know, no, I yeah, I, or I know two men who like this book. I've already, but I've they already both staged to... my effective defense of this book. This is a little coda. Okay, well, um, <laughs> uh, your coda is a virus that infects the rest of your defense and mm. eats it um, from the inside like an Ebola. But, um, but because, um, you know, or defending a book on the basis of, you know, well, two men I know like it, but they had an experience substantially similar to the central portion of the book or whatever. It doesn't it really just... matter if men like it. Women buy books anyway. Who cares whether men like it? I, I, Katie, I'm shocked at the degree to which you conflate commercial success and expertise with aesthetic success. And, no, I think this book know, has both. Virtue. I think it has aesthetic success and commercial success. Maybe they've just become jumbled in your mind. No, no. I, I'm, I'm the last person. I'm usually the person criticizing a book. I'm the last person to criticize, um, to praise a book for being successful. Well, I have a request. Since I've been accused of um, arbitrarily disliking the book and of capriciously, capriciously picking, picking out unrepresentative passages from it, I would love each of you to pick out a passage that you find um, admirable in the book, and maybe it will convey to listeners who are still on the fence what it is about this book that... Um, well, I really like the portion of time that she spends in Rome because um, I once spent a chunk of time in Rome, and in fact, I studied at the same Italian language school where she studies in the book, and I was a little bit... At the beginning of the book, she says, I can't possibly tell you, dear readers, where the ashram is. I don't want the ashram to be flooded with you horrible bestseller-reading seekers. But then she just tells everybody to go to Scuola Leonardo da Vinci mm. in the middle of Piazza dell'Orologio. And it's like, hello. Like, it's going to be just as hard to get a week of study there now. Um, although in the end, she, uh, she drops out of school. Um, but she talks about learning Italian um, and the pleasures of learning to speak Italian in a way that I totally relate to. When I was in Italy, I found myself just randomly repeating things that sounded good to me uh, and... In fact, I've, I, you know, I feel like as a, a writer and editor, your ear is attuned to things. But by the time I'd been in Italy for two months, I had become so accustomed to how I spoke Italian and all my favorite things to say that I was having trouble figuring out whether I had just invented some Julia idiom or, uh, you know, had actually picked up the way that the Romans spoke it. So she talks about how she's, she has an Italian uh, tutor and they have sort of a language exchange. And she teaches him the English phrase, I've been there as in I've been through a tough time. And then Giovanni, classically he's named Giovanni, says to her, the empathizing Italians say, lo provata sulla mia pelle, which means I have experienced that on my own skin, meaning I have also been burned or scarred in this way, and I know exactly what you're going through. So far, though, my favorite thing to say in all of Italian is a simple, common word, attraversiamo. It means let's cross over. Friends say it to each other constantly when they're walking down the sidewalk and have decided it's time to switch to the other side of the street which is to say this is literally a pedestrian word, nothing special about it. Still, for some reason, it goes right through me. And then she goes on to describe how Giovanni couldn't understand why I liked the word so much. Let's cross the street, but to my ear, it's the perfect combination of Italian sounds, the wistful awe of introduction, the rolling trill, the soothing S, that lingering iamo combo at the end. I love this word. I say it all the time now. I invent any excuse to say it. It's making Sophie, a friend of hers from the school, nuts. Let's cross over. Let's cross over. I'm constantly dragging her back and forth across the crazy traffic of Rome. I'm going to get us both killed with this word. I loved that. And I also, I mean, I also like there's a moment she describes in sort of all her meditation, there's one moment where she reaches a real sense of enlightenment. And she says, you know, 
it's a it's a time when it's when she's been asked to be the key hostess. She's hosting all these various people at the ashram. She's guiding them. They're there for a week of silent retreat, and she describes sort of feeling all of their focus and energy, and it helps her with her meditation. And she gets to some higher plane and says, and then that afternoon I found myself sitting in the palm of God's hand or something like that. And then there's a chapter break, and she says, this is the part I always hate of these books. I hate how um, – here, wait. You know, and this is so canny, but it just worked on me. I mean, maybe maybe I'm a – that makes me a simpleton, but I just found it very persuasive. As a reader and seeker, I always get frustrated at this moment in somebody else's spiritual memoirs, the moment in which the soul excuses itself from time and place and merges with the infinite. I mean, she's just so... I like that part, too, yeah. yeah. You know, clearly nothing about this book really worked for me. There are some parts of it that I find... I, I have a grudging respect for her ability to manufacture a giant bestseller out of what she purports to be her own experiences and the neatness with which she presents it. I think she's a very, very, very good writer, um, but of a very specific kind. Uh, I don't find any of the insights into either God or herself credible. And, and from, to, to my mind, if a boundary collapses between self-knowledge and self-satisfaction, and if that isn't kept fairly, you know, rigorously policed, then you do lapse into, I mean, the, the kind of common word for the collapse of that boundary now in contemporary discourse is spirituality, this kind of like completely hazy, ill-defined, atheological attempt at some of what's great about religion, but with all the nasty stuff excised out. And nowhere in this book did I get the sense that life was real, because real life is about really hard, really difficult choices. And a book becomes powerfully consolatory or persuasive when it takes some acknowledgement of that. And the acknowledgement of that often takes the form of a psychic tax on the reader. The reader's forced to go through an experience of mourning or loss or grief or diminishment, which is inherent in the existential situation. You bond with the book and you emerge from it consoled or augmented in some way. But because this book really is about finding God in the pizza is one of its preposterous blurbs on its cover says. This book really is about having it all. It really is about not having to make any hard choices ever about anything or anybody. And because the grief that propels it, I find completely unpersuasive. I, I regard this book as I regard this book as a complete and total failure. I really do, I and, I, and I won't back and I won't back off from that for, for one inch. <laughs> right, I'm going to read my passage now, which I think captures a little bit of her her quirky attitude of toward herself as a seeker. On my ride back to the ashram after seeing Richard off at the airport, I decide I've been talking too much. To be honest, I've been talking too much my whole life, but I've really been talking too much during my stay at the ashram. I have another two months here, and I don't want to waste the greatest spiritual opportunity of my life by being all social and chatty the whole time. It's been amazing for me to discover that even here, even in a sacred environment of spiritual retreat on the other side of the world, I've managed to create a cocktail party-like vibe around me. It's not just Richard I've been talking to constantly, though we did do most of the gabbing. I'm always yakking with somebody. I've even found myself in an ashram, mind you, creating appointments to see acquaintances, having to say to somebody, I'm sorry, I can't hang out with you at lunch today because I promised Sakshi I would eat with her. Maybe we could make a date for next Tuesday. So... As I say, I think that she's undermining the this kind of spiritual search at the same time as she's making it. And to me that um, – and maybe, you know, I'm Would less you... interested in the spiritual search aspect of it. I mean it's um, true. It, but... It's interesting because the, the fortress metaphor that I keep coming back to 
does say suggest that I'm at war with the book. And I think, you know, what you said, Stephen, is very smart in that there's something about her glib overcoming that feels not real. But to me, in the experience of reading the book, there's something so real about the various moments she goes through and sort of the moments of grief and the moments of self-doubt and the moments of discovery and the moments of friendship that to me it felt like sort of her real journey. And although I don't believe in God and I don't think this is how I would respond to such a traumatic time in my life, I don't see why, how it benefits. Having enjoyed her company and the story of her development, it doesn't bother me that it's not how I would choose to think about these things or experience this world. I mean, I know I think in some ways like this, I know people who think a lot like this, and it's interesting to me to hear her story, even if it's a very carefully crafted story, because I do think it's fundamentally honest about the way she thinks about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I found that the, the sort of spiritual bow at the end the most off-putting in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I think that what Julia was saying is right, is it's about I do feel like you're listening to something real. You know, and you're not, you know, that, that what she is describing and what she sees and what she feels along the way is what I believe. And whether or not her life is totally resolved, whether or not she's found God and there's never another problem, I mean, that's less important. I mean, a book needs an ending and lots of writers give their books. I mean, we last book club we were talking about Dennis Johnson's um, incredibly neat ending to his 650-page yeah. novel. So yeah. I don't I, – I mean, I guess – I think we're all most skeptical and most uncomfortable with the spiritual quest aspect of this book. But to me, that was the least interesting part about it. Well, and that's, that is the part that comes closest to fantasy. I mean, in some ways, this book is like a romance novel, but the romance, instead mm-hmm. of being with the man, is with this idea of God, which is, I think, part of also why it's resonating with so many American women. You know, I mean, there's like there's some moment in it where she's like, I wanted to feel God inside me. And I'm like, what, are, what am I reading here, you know? Yeah. But well, the other there, part there of should fantasy, be said there are many moments by the about way, there's another, God being inside I think you're you. totally I – mean, there's another part of this book that's fantasy in this level, which is what would happen – if you decided to opt out of your life, you had this nice, safe life, this big house in the suburbs, you're married to someone and you're about to have a baby, what happens if you opt out of that? And I found this element of it most prevalent when you read Amazon reviews and stuff of this book with just masses of massive internet reviews is that people are both, why couldn't she stay home and just have a kid and take care of them like all the rest of us, sort of rage against her. And also... This, and this is part of the travel. Most people don't have the luxury to go around the world for a year. And that part of the fantasy and the Harlequin romance-ness of the book is what people love about it, which is what if you don't accept normal bourgeois life? What if you drop out for a while and you just fall? And she's obviously somebody who's very controlling, very ambitious, and all of that. And it's that fantasy that I think she's playing on and drawing on and kind of you know is interesting to people and certainly she's been attacked for if you read these these books you know why didn't she just stay with her husband and work hard to make it work i have four kids and i stay at home and it's perfectly fulfilling i don't need to go to bali yeah. you know I did that you know that that aspect of it didn't it, it that, that didn't bother me or it didn't provoke i should say it didn't provoke a sort of complex chain of thinking about whether or not she had foregone some sort of life obligation by not you know fulfilling her marriage with this man at the beginning of the book by having a child. I mean, all of that. I understand that there, she I under- has the house and she's Oh, I understand of- she has the entire life, but I, I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that I agree that it's an anti-bourgeois gesture to go on this long and quite, obviously probably quite expensive trip. And, I just mean that she you know, leaves her husband. I mean, she doesn't I, have the kid. I, I she think decides it's a thoroughly, not to have the kid. 
I, I think within the con- of... within the context of of this day and age, it's a thoroughly bourgeois well especially for women i think it's and this is the part that resonates for a lot of people is the deciding not to have the kid because she's in her mid-30s and she decides i'm not going to have this kid and maybe i'm never going to have a kid because i maybe i'm not the person who wants to have a kid which she talks about explicitly here which is something that is not widely discussed in women's literature or women's kind of books of this kind. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think part of what makes her a fascinating and intriguing figure is her refusal, and I mean specifically, of not just the suburban house, but also of the child. Um, And it isn't that this, it's, you're right, it's kind of a safe version of that fantasy, but it is that fantasy that she's playing on is what if you didn't take that life, this life you have, you know, you and your big station wagon with your three kids, what if you didn't have that station wagon and those three kids? Mm Mm-hmm. And you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah. I mean, but it's a fantasy in two senses. There's the fantasy in sort of like this is a, a lark that people would like to go on. But the the spiritual stuff and sort of the her the ending lessons, the way she discovers to deal with the world and the problems in it, that is sort of what strikes me as most fantastical. And I think that's the part where as much as I enjoyed her company and, and, and her experiences, I don't think I come away with this feeling like I've found some kind of emotional succor and – I will think of Elizabeth Gilbert the next time I'm crying on the bathroom floor. You know, like I, yeah, I, I mean, uh, there is a way in which her, some of her answer, I think, and this is maybe just because I'm not a spiritual person and that's not the answer for me. So to me, her, the answer she's found feel, feel fantastical and, and, and sort of like a, a not satisfying solution. Well, this is what I meant to say about the lingerie when she buys all the lingerie, even though she's not sleeping with anybody. I think there are accidental moments in this book where the things she discovers are more interesting. Right. Um, And that there's like little bits of recovery that you see in the parts where she's not actually eating the pasta, you know, in the non-official moments of the book that are interesting to me and that are actually more interesting to me. Well, this has been a particularly loving session (laughs) (laughs) of the Slate Audiobook Club from which we all walk away enhanced. Katie, Julia... Thank you very much for having this discussion about Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert's blockbuster memoir. For Slate.com, I'm Stephen Metcalf. For our next audio book club, we've chosen All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, a classic political novel. We'll be posting the discussion in early March, so you have some time to start reading or rereading. If you have any comments about the Audiobook Club or any of the other Slate podcasts, send an email to podcasts at slate.com. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.